Hey, good people. This is your NI Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, truth. That is my starting point. Truth, which is the state of being factual or real, grounded in reality. And that's an abridged definition from the internet and um, as I was trying to poke around and get a definition of truth I kept slipping into a philosophical discussion or exploration of truth because truth has a philosophical component to it so that's the definition that I want to use as my starting point the state of being factual factual or grounded in reality or real and that's just it's just an invitation waiting to be that's just a debate ready to happen right i want to i want to interrogate that definition i want to reject it but we are going to use it as a starting point okay i want to tell you that i have been on an extended uh, weekend as most people, but not all people. We just had a national holiday. Today is Sunday, by the way. And we just had a national holiday on Thursday. And most people get Thursday and Friday off, as did I. Not all people, again. That's a different conversation. Um, but I had Thursday and Friday off. And then adding that to Saturday and Sunday. So I had four days. Four days, I found myself using the time in a way that I hadn't used it in a while. So there was something nostalgic about how I used the past four days. I thought about you all a lot. Like I had planned on doing a couple of reflections. But I was so into um, my, I just had been in my head, really. Um, and I wanted to come and talk to you when I had some clarity about what was in my head. And it's taken me four days to do so. And I don't even know if it's true. Like We'll see what happens when I start talking about truth. Um, but there are, there have been a number of things that I've been processing over the past four days. And today I decided to link all of those things to this idea of truth. So I have, about, I have a piece of paper because I had to map it out. I was determined to talk to you all today. I did not want to end my four-day weekend without having any time with you. So I was like, nope, it is Sunday evening. Before we go do karaoke, <laughs> we are going to do some talking to the Your NI Down community. So I took a piece of paper and I tried to map all of the things that have been floating in my head for the past four days. And I tried to link them to truth, whether they really link or not remains to be seen we will test that out on the other side of the disclaimers but i did do a map and there are about 10 things that i'm linking to truth some of those are direct links and some of those are subdirect sub sub links so i'll tell you the main things that i've been processing um i think the last time i talked to you all i said i've been trying to figure out my problem solving hack as it relates to work but when that's one thing, 
um, there's been um, another death in my life. So there's that. And I've been processing personality theory. I've, I've stumbled across some new material. I thought I've covered everything as it relates to the MBTI. I have just entered into some new territory as relating to the MBTI. And that has been on my mind. So those are your three direct links to truth. You have to get, wait till I get on the other side of the disclaimers to see how I unpack them. But there's a lot there. There's a lot there. But here we go. If you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INDJ8. Also, I identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist of about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I play with tenants of critical race feminism, which basically means I have an intellectual sensitivity to social constructs such as race, class, gender, sexuality, to name a few. I went to church today, by the way. I haven't been to a traditional church service. Well, I went to a black church service, and I haven't been to a black church service. That's about church, Sunday church, not funeral, but church service on Sunday in a few years. (laughs) And um, so that was interesting. And so these tenets of critical race feminism, they pop up. Um, they pop up when I'm in church spaces, and it's very difficult, very, very, very difficult. So that might come up in the reflection today. But anyway, this project is unedited and is unscripted. To know more about it or me, feel free to go to my website at youranidom.wordpress.com. And, okay. All right. I chuckled earlier because I was trying to get to five minutes, trying to get this all set up within five minutes, but I wasn't able to do that, mainly because I don't know what the heck I'm going to be talking about as it relates to truth. But anyway, so I'm going to try to jump in here somewhere. So truth is this notion of being factual or real. I think I want to start off philosophically. When I was um when I was doing my um when I started my doctoral studies, I think my very first class was the philosophy of education or educational philosophies, which was interesting because having three to two other degrees in education, that didn't seem like a topic that I needed. I didn't need to get a doctorate to explore ed philosophies. But it was something that was important because your philosophy of education not only undergirds your practice, but also your research. I just had a conversation with some people last week about their research agenda and the philosophy and the values associated with their research and it's so interesting it's so fascinating when people do not want to acknowledge or own their philosophies and those values as though research is value-free research is not value-free and is not void of philosophy and so the individual plural 
really had not been ever required to address that question. And as a result, there was some defensiveness. How dare I question them on something that they don't have an answer to? But I held the line. I said, whether you can articulate your research agenda or not, doesn't mean you don't have one. It doesn't mean you don't have one. It just means you can't articulate it. So there's that. So philosophically, let's go back to these Ed philosophies, which was really fascinating because I'm glad I took the course because to explore um, these philosophies, um, even though I was taking it in an education course, these were not really philosophies of education, not the ones I'm about to share with you. They were philosophies of early thinking. You have people like Plato and Aristotle. And why they get counted as early thinking, it's all about, well, I'm sorry, y'all. It's all about white supremacy. Because whose original thoughts are included in textbooks or not? Now, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. Because somebody could say, they weren't white. I'm, I'm not going to touch that. Oh, gosh, I just went somewhere that I am not prepared to, to unpack. So we'll leave that alone. I'm going to back out of that one. Some of you may have stopped listening to me now because... Boy, people get upset when you say white supremacy. They don't like that concept. Mm-mm-mm. Wonder why. But anyway, so these philosophies were really um, just early thinking as recognized by people who publish textbooks and define knowing and learning. So the early thinkers that were recognized let's put it that way and um and so these were people of medicine of religion of schooling of science all of these disciplines were connected to these core philosophies and i think that's fascinating so anyway so the two that i want to talk about are um what's called idealism and realism. Now, there's there are other philosophies that I lean into: um, uh, pragmatism, social reconstructionism, constructivism. Those are some other. Well, constructivism is more of a learning theory, but nonetheless, um, so pragmatism and social reconstructionism. Those are philosophies. I don't. I might touch on that a little bit, but I want to get to idealism and realism because that connects to this idea of truth the way we traditionally treat truth okay both of those philosophies suggest that truth is fixed it's fixed it's external it's objective it cannot be manipulated both of those philosophies are treat truth in that way that is external, it is objective, it fixed, it can't be manipulated. Let's just take those three principles. Now, 
idealism says that that external objective reality exists with some higher being. Universal, spiritual, but mainly mainly spiritual being. Spiritual entity. And then realism says that that external truth exists within the laws of nature. That when you put those two together, I think that's essentialism. I think when you put those two schools, those two philosophical thoughts together, you get essentialism. I don't know. You got to look that one up. Um, you don't have to look up what I just told you about idealism and realism. I, I can stand on that. But I think essentialism is when you put those two together. But anyway, both of those, again, philosophies situate truth externally, objectively, and fixed. I think that... I think that objectively, that objective statement may, may be contested. You may be screaming at your listening device right now. And for that, you're right. Because idealism, I don't know how objective idealism is. It is treated as though it's subjective, as though it's factual. But I don't know how many people treat idealism as measurable as they do realism. See, realism as grounded in the laws of nature can be measured. Idealism, it's a truth. It's considered factual, but I don't know if it's measurable. That's interesting. So that would tell me one is rational and the other is irrational. Hmm. That's something I'm going to chew on. Will you join me? Think about that with me. That's how they talk at the church. Won't you join me? (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, so if we believe that truth is situated, it's outside of us, that means it cannot be constructed. It cannot be manipulated. It can be discovered. It can be accepted. But it cannot be manipulated. Um, then you are more of an uh, a realist or an idealist. The other schools of thought, let's say pragmatism. Pragmatism says truth is constructed. Truth is situational. Truth is relevant to the thing you're trying to do. You're trying to do something. Truth is related to what you're trying to do. The moment you try to do something else, truth changes. Truth is not fixed. And then when you do social reconstructionism, truth has um, a moral component. Um, So does idealism. But truth has a, excuse me, social reconstructionism has a political moralism, if you will. What truth should be. It should be grounded in making the world a better place, making it just and more equitable. So those are your philosophical concepts that I'm starting off with. It's 15 minutes into the reflection. I wanted to share that. So that was one thing on my map. 
to share. Let me go to another part on a map and let's talk about math. Now, math has been coming up for me in my head over the past four days because I want to make, I want it. I still do, but I don't know how to. I don't have the savviness, the sophistication. I'm going to be honest. Like my granddaddy said, tell the truth of Shane Adelo, devil. I don't have the sophistication to make this point that I'm going to make. I'm going to make it, but I can't back it up. I wanted to put personality theory on par with math. Um, and I think I want to say cognitive functions. Let's just say cognitive function theory. Although I don't know if I hear people framing it that way. I'm going to look that up. I'm going to frame it that way though. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Just bear with me on this one. Let me talk about math first. Mm, nope, no, 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 no. Let me talk a little bit about cognitive, func- cognitive function theory. So I don't know if I told you this. Cause, um, so I've, I have stumbled into some new territory with um, um, the MBTI and cognitive functions. Always fascinates me when I when I reach a new frontier, when I think I've explored all there is to explore, and then something new pops up. So something new popped up in my, um, for me this in the past four days, really relating to cognitive function theory, and those would be called quadras if I'm saying it right. Quadras are. When you take the 16, excuse me, when you take the 16 personalities based on Myers-Briggs, there are only four distributions as relating to cognitive functions. So you have 16 personalities, but you have four Four distributions of those cognitive functions. Now, the way that those distributions align in a stack varies based on personality, but there are only four ways that those eight cognitive functions can be distributed. Now, if you've been studying quadrus, I hope I got, I hope I'm saying that word right. So bear with me. But if you've been studying it longer than four days, as I have been just studying this for four days. So if I'm saying something wrong, feel free to hook a sister up. Don't have me out here looking ridiculous. Send me a message and correct me. And then you know, you guys know I'll come back and correct myself like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said it. That was so stupid. Why did I say that? But <laughs> so I'm only going to, I'm talking based on four days of relearning. Okay. And actually that's not true. I just started reading about it yesterday. So we're talking about two days of learning about quadras, okay? So you have eight cognitive functions, 16 personalities, and then you have four distributions, four distributions of those eight cognitive functions. So let me talk about my, the quadra that I'm a part of. The quadra that I'm a part of has these four cognitive functions, N-I-T-E, F-I-S-E. Now that's the arrangement for me as an INTJ. 
But if I was an ENTJ, it would be T-E-N-I-S-E-F-I. Two different personality types, the same four cognitive functions. Let me try to push this a little further. I think if I was an ESFP, yes, I think I'm right, I think I'm right, that stack would be ESFP, ESFP, ESFP would be S-E-F-I-T-E-N-I. Same four cognitive functions. And if I was an ISFP, that arrangement would be F-I-S-E-N-I-T-E. All four of those, ENTJ, INTJ, ESFP, ISFP, all have the same four cognitive functions. And they exist as a cluster or a quadra. So there are four distributions of four cognitive functions. And so you get four times four, you get 16 personalities. All right. This is your first time hearing it. Feel free to push pause. I had to do this. I had to read it. I was reading it, rereading it, listening and re-listening it to it over the last two days. Okay. It's not that difficult. Really, it's not that difficult, but it's just new. The other thing that threw me off when I, when this was presented to me is that I was like, are you talking, you're talking about temperaments because there are four temperaments. So I think initially as I was reading about those quadras, I was getting confused because I was like, don't turn to temperaments because those are separate, separate ways of distributing those cognitive functions. Temperaments are about, and I couldn't tell you this. I can't tell you the algorithm. I think I would love to say it's the two middle letters, but I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true. I have to come back and share with you. Actually, I don't even talk about temperaments a lot. I know my my temperament is 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 it the rationals? I think I'm in the rational temperament. And it's an NT. But I can't tell you those other three. But I should come back and talk about that. But anyway, when I was reading about the quadras, I was I was initially thinking, are you giving me another way of saying temperaments? Nope, those are separate. Now, let me tell you what I found interesting about that, though. The temperaments are about the way you use your, cogni- you, um, your cognition, the way you engage in cognition. Quadras are about values. That is fascinating. And that connects to something else on my map and what I've been talking about. Like when I, my last episode with you all called the burden, that burden was about values. But it really, when I thought about it later, and I thought that, I think I said it when I ended the reflection or later, it really wasn't even about values. It's about trying to act in a rational way where those values are c- causing a challenge. So the, the values are the burden. But they're not the burden because they exist. They're a burden because they are interfering with what I said in that episode, interfering with movement. My TE, 
All right. So I've been thinking about those values because I think I told you guys I want to come up with a hack. Because sometimes this doesn't happen often. But I get into a place where those values are so demonstratized. Demonstratized? They're so magnified. They're so big. That not only do they prevent, well, they're preventing movement. And I don't know what to do with them. And so, um, <laughs> I wanted to tell you guys why, why I just laughed is related to something else. I'd love to share with you though. Um, but I'm not going to, I don't want to fall into a rabbit hole right now. Um, those values, now this doesn't happen often. Because most of the time, my values are linked to my TE, as they should be. My TE is up ahead, is out front of doing the thing. My my values are in check; they're in alignment. But there are times when my TE is not able to move, and I don't think it's the values that um. I don't think the values are holding me back. I need to play with this theory in my head a little more. Because I don't think it's the values that's holding me back. I think because I don't have the positionality to reconcile those values. So in, in certain, there are times, it doesn't happen often. There are times when I'm, I'm forced to be inactive. My TE cannot move. And then there's like this traffic, there's like a pile up with my values. Like, what? We can't take action in these. Our values are really, um, it's like a pile up. I don't know another way to explain it. Because if I was taking action, those values would be in like in a backseat. We're here for the ride. Like, we, we got you. We back up for you. But when that, when my tea is handcuffed or shackled or whatever inappropriate word I can attach to it, right? Politically inappropriate. There, anyway, I have to talk about that another time too. Why am I calling it politically inappropriate? These words, but anyway, that's related to my job. We'll talk about that at another time. Then the values become bigger because the te can't move. And it's all based on what the NI is showing us. The NI is showing us something. We value a thing. We, we, we have values about the thing that the NI is showing us. TE is taking action. Now, I read an article. I'm bouncing a little bit here, you guys. Hope you can follow me. Um, I read an article a couple of years ago that talked about there being, I think he said four different types of INTJs. I don't remember, but. They made the argument that for some INTJs, they're N-I-F-I-T-E-S-E. Now, that's ridiculous when you think about the Myers-Briggs. The whole framework is says that those those functions have to alternate between introversion and extroversion. That you cannot be N-I-F-I-T-E-S-E. But... Somebody else would explain it as a loop, 
would say N-I-N-F-I, you're looping there. Okay. I don't know. But here's what I will say. Those are both introverted functions. That N-I, that F-I is automatically there. And I think, it's my thinking, that the only reason why that F-I would get more play is if there's something stopping the TE from doing its thing. Now, if that man who wrote that article, I think it was a guy, if his argument is that a person doesn't want to use their TE and then they that FI is strong, okay, that's hard for me to reconcile. That's hard for me to sit with. For me, my NI and FI are connected because they're both my introverted functions, but only time that that FI is noticeable, only time that FI is notice, noticeable is when there's something prohibiting my TE from acting. That's it. So anyway, I don't know why I fell in that rabbit hole. I was trying to tell you about these quadras. Anyway, so I've been reading about those quadrants and why is that relevant? Um, and what's fascinating when I think about this new learning around these quadrants, what I really am excited about is that they do connect. They, um, this treatment of cognitive functions give value to the linking of these functions when they're in the same direction. So the introverted functions are linked, N-I-F-I. The extroverted functions are linked, T-E-S-E, as it relates to I-N-T-J. As it relates to INTJ, ENTJ, ESFP, ISFP, that those are linked. Now, oftentimes we talk about the axis, NISE, TI, excuse me, TEFI. Those are axes, those are linked. This is the first time that I've heard these functions linked according to their direction or their attitudes. And I'm really excited about what that's going to allow me to do in my head. That there is something about when you have NI and FI together, there's a timber. You can't separate them. And I was listening to, you guys know the guy, his name is Frank James. He was like, stop talking about the loop. Because most people treat this loop idea when you go in and you go back and forth between those two preferred directions. So as an introvert, my preferred direction is inward, N-I-F-I. If I were an extrovert, and and if I was an ENTJ, my preferred, my loop would be T-E-S-E. Because I'm going to prefer to be in the direction of my orientation. So, um, and there are people who call, like, say looping is bad. 
And he was like, stop worrying about it. Kind of, no, it's just how, that's how the personality is made. It's really interesting. Cause I think some years ago he did a, he himself did a video on looping, but I don't know. We all have the right to evolve and grow, but I like that. You can't separate them anyway. You cannot. So let's talk about what happens when you consider these cognitive functions linked together. So we'll link those front two seats, those top two, N-I-T-E, the low, right? How do they work together? We link the axes, but we really haven't linked the functions as it relates to direction, introverted or extroverted. And I think that's just been really fascinating. What happens when NI and FI are connected? And man, man, that TESE connection, which makes me think about Enneagram type 8 being action-oriented through the body. Hot diggity dog. That TESE denotes action in the physical world. It does. See, it's so powerful. Like my mind has just been expanded. When you take, like, so I think in the last reflection I did with you all, or the one before it, one was the burden, one was the dilemma, I can't remember. That may have been the last one where I was saying, INTJ's eights are different from INTJ fives and fives may not be as action oriented through the body because they're head oriented. INTJ fives, fives are head oriented and and eights are body oriented. But when you think about the pairing of T-E-S-E, it denotes action, physical action. When you put those together. Fascinating. Now, technically, SE for the ENT, for the INTJ is, is inferior. So how much of that pairing is happening? I don't know. I think that needs to be factored into my new wonderings, but that's what. So anyway. Um, so I think, I think I, 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 I'm sure I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk about those quadrants, but what, what I started thinking about was how sophisticated this system is. It has, it has just so much to offer us to understand ourselves Internally, externally, who we are with other people, who we are in work, in our families, in love relationships. It's fascinating to me. And then I think about people who try to denounce it. People who try to discredit it. It's not a thing. And that's what made me think about mathematics. It's mathematic. A theory. Or is it 
inherently grounded in the laws of nature. And that's what makes me think about idealism and realism. Is the symbolic, is mathematic, if, if, is mathematics a symbolic representation of the physical world? Is a symbolic, is it a symbolic representation or is, is it a theory, a cons- construct with a set of propositions? Now, I've been reading about that over the last few days as well. Those who say that it's a set of prepositions, theories that is constructed, say that you can run a mathematical experiment, but you don't get it exact every time. You don't get the output exact every time because it... um, the physical world is not stable. That we're in motion and it's hard to measure that motion with the level of precision that it, it can only be theorized. It, it's not exact. It's not precise. That seems logical to me. And then you have a school of thought that says, If you look at the physical world, the physical world is made up of these patterns. Um, These patterns and these shapes. That. It's just there. It's not constructed. Now it might be named, but if you take the naming away. Whether you call gravity, gravity, doesn't matter. The phenomena is still there. The phenomenon of gravity is going to be there whether we name it or not. Naming it helps us to understand it, helps us to do something more with it. But it already, it is a thing whether it is named or not. I'd love to know what your philosophy is on that. The reason why I started thinking about math as though, is it a theoretical construct or is it a symbolic construct? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Is it a theoretical construct or is it a, is it a symbolic representation of patterns and shapes embedded in the physical world? I'd love to know your thoughts on that. So... Um, but I started thinking about that as it related to cognitive functions, Myers-Briggs. Is the, are those cognitive functions, is that a theory that is likely true because we can do something with it? See, there's pragmatism. What we can do with it is true because we can do something with it. Or does that theory work because it is inherent? There's something measurable in the brain 
that that theory then becomes a symbolic representation of what happens in the brain. And I think as we build our instruments, our scientific instruments, to be able to map the brain activity, map brain, yeah, map brain activity, we'll find out. Um, so I want to tell you about somebody who passed away. I'm bouncing around a little bit, but I am still true to my map. I told you there's a lot of things on the map <laughs> around truth. So on Wednesday, that's not true. On Tuesday, I found out that a childish friend of mine had passed away. And um, it's sad. It's very sad. Uh, for a number of different reasons. And some of it is selfish. Some of it is selfish where I feel guilty about it. About my grief. But he was the brother of my childhood best friend. So I had a childhood best friend. Roughly we were best friends from first grade through eighth. There were some hit, there were some rocky moments. We were best friends from that time period. We were also all-star volleyball players. We played volleyball. And uh, fifth through eighth grade, and we went to Catholic school, and that's when you, that was the only sport we could play. I think we had cheerleading. But um, in terms of physical competition, well, cheerleading can be a sport. So anyway, volleyball was what we had. We didn't have any other. Oh, we had softball, too, and we both played on that as well. But we were the all-star players for um and I probably was not I don't think I was the original I don't think I was the original I don't know I don't know I don't remember but I feel like there was somebody I was competing with to get that all-star position anyway the two of us were all-star players we were also neighbors we lived about four houses from each other so we walked to school in the morning and our parents kind of did this share riding thing. Like my mom couldn't pick me up from a game or event. Her mom picked us up, picked me up and, you know, we went to her house or she came to my house or whatever. So we were in softball together. We were in volleyball together. We were in Girl Scouts together. I think the only thing we didn't do was dance because I was in a dance company. Um, and then later in life, we became roommates for about four or five years. Um, college room, we weren't in the dorms. We got an apartment. And she ended up going to the school I went to where I got my first and second degree. And we, we, we were in the same profession. We're both educators. She never went into leadership. Her husband did. Um, so our lives have been together. We've been, our lives, we've traveled together. Even though I've stopped calling her my best friend as of eighth grade, probably sixth grade. I think in sixth grade, I officially stopped calling her my best friend. But then in eighth grade, we picked it up. The other thing we did together is we've, it's been an interesting thing. Uh, so we were friends. I'm going to still say first to eighth grade, although it was rocky at times. And then her brother was a year and a half behind us. He was the typical annoying little brother. 
He was the, if you think about any book where somebody has some, somebody has a little brother and, it, and their friends are trying to hang out and the little brother gets in your, goes to your diary, <laughs> teases you. He was that. Oh, he was annoying. <laughs> and, um, he developed to be a mature man, father, husband. My friend lost her mother early, um, and so they got closer, and um, I didn't know he was sick. And Tuesday, she posted it on Facebook. I just reactivated my Facebook account, my primary one. It was shut down for a year and a half. And uh, so I don't check it. I love it. I don't, there's a reason. We have to talk about Facebook another time. Why I don't even spend a lot of time in Facebook world. I think it's problematic, but anyway, but my sister saw that my best, my childhood friend posted that her brother had passed. My sister saw it, tried to call me, but my phone was off and called my mom. And then later my mom called me and it took the wind out of me. It took the wind out of me. I feel like I've just gotten to the place in the last couple of months where I'm not slowed down by the grief of, of the death of my father and his, my aunt. I'm like, good night. And then I tried to convince myself that I wasn't close to him. Life, can, no, it's not, it doesn't work that way. Because he represents my childhood. He represents my age. He represents what it means to live. And it's, and then like, her relationship to him, his relationship to my friend. And it's just like, oh my God, I felt like I had to go all the way back. So I did an episode called, um, I don't know if it was called SE reality, but I did an episode on what's real. Like what's this thing called life? Because after my dad died, it really was messing with my head. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be human? What is real? What is imagined? I mean, y'all, it, it was really tough. I'm, I talked about it. I don't know. what I think it was S, S. Oh, I think it was called SJ Realities. That's what it was called. SJ Realities. And... I think that's what living in the SJ world or something like that. What's real? And what we think of as real is defined by SJ, SJ personality types. And I think in that episode, I was conjuring or speculating. What would reality be? How would we see reality if we allowed the world to be defined by NJ folks? If NJs were the power holders and we could define what reality is, would our sense of what is real be the same? So that's what I'm I processing that reflection. I'm telling you, when I got the news Tuesday night, I said, it took me right back about what the hell is real? What is real? And then that takes me to what is truth? What is reality? And I just have been in the last few days pondering that.
and we act as though this that we're sentient beings is physical dimension. We act as though that is truth, that that's grounded in reality. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if it's for me to know. You know? <laughs> you know? But, um, but I think about, I think about this notion of personality theory and these cognitive functions and we try to, oh, I know what I was going to tell you. Okay, so, I'm going to go back to my friend and her brother. So when my mom called me and told me that he had passed, I just like, oh. Um, and then I had to contend with some my own moral truth. Because when my dad passed in September, my friend didn't call and offer me a condolence. She didn't. I was very, very bothered by it. And when I asked her about it, she said that she made a comment on my sister's Facebook post offering condolences. Well, she knew my, she knew my sister because my sister was like the annoying little sister, although she's younger. And when I was in cheerleading and all of that, she was always there. She was in the house, right? So they knew each other just like I knew her brother. That's fine. But when her mom passed, when my friend's mom passed, I called, I went and sat with her, went just I went to the funeral. I I didn't get anything from her when my dad died. And this is not just one person who's done this. My quote unquote best friend was the same way. And that's a whole different reflection, like I think this is part of what I talk about intergenerational trauma, me being attracted to people in a way that reinforces my relation, my experiences with family. That's not cool. I don't want friends like that now. I got to tell you. So I'm thinking after talking to her, I'm like, I wonder if she an INTJ, but it does not. Because I think, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I can see INTJ saying, I don't know what the social rules are. But this isn't about the social rules. This is about, yo, I had a friend of mine who did something for me. What does it mean to be in friendship? That's not, that's not okay. That's not cool. I'm not accepting that as an INTJ. Uh, And I think that she could easily be INTJ, if not INFJ. I don't know. I never even thought about typing her. But anyway, so it was hard. So I was, when I got the news, I was really sad. And then I would have picked up the phone and called him like, wait a minute. Then there's a immature side of me that was like, well, she didn't call and offer you your condolences. Offer her condolences for you. I literally had to sit on that for about 15 minutes, y'all. Hire me one out, not send her a text. So that was how I compromised. Like, I'm not going to call you, but I am going to send you a text. And she responded, thanks. She called me sis, like sister. 
I was like, that's weird. But all the same, okay. And then I think two days later, oh, the next day, which was the day before Thanksgiving, I was just so heavy, like, wow. I was heavy for him. I was heavy for her. It was Thanksgiving, the day before Thanksgiving. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I've called her. And you get a lot of calls when you are dealing with a loss. And But she called me back. We talked for about an hour. And I made a comment about not being close to them. Anyway, she was like, what? You're like family. And I was just like, really? <laughs> like, at some point I would have said, yeah, I'm family. And then I'm thinking to myself, when you didn't call, when you didn't call and to check up on me to offer your condolences when my dad died, I don't know, you're right, that is like family. And that's the kind of family I'm trying to protect myself from. That's not cool for me. It's not my reality. I don't need that. Now, here's the other part. I don't need it. So it's not like I'm calling her and trying to negotiate and explain. You hurt my feelings when you didn't call. Nope. Mm-mm. Didn't do that at all. Because I was able to move on. I like equity, though. What's good for you is what's good for you is good for me. And I don't. But that's not really my philosophy. So anyway, I called her and we talked for an hour. I brought all of that up because um, I asked her if she believed in life after death. And later in the conversation, she said she was worried when I raised that question. Because she thought I was about to go down some religious pathway. And then she said, this is what she told me later, later in the conversation. That she was like, no, she's an intellect. She's an intellectual. She's not going to do that. And I didn't. But what I did say is. I am unwilling. To limit reality. To the instruments that we currently have access to. To measure reality. And 10 years ago I wouldn't have said that. But 10 years ago I hadn't studied. The evolution of science. And studying, I can't think of his name right now, the guy who, quote unquote, discovered the atom. And when he discovered that atom and he tried to talk about it, he was uh, considered a laughing stock amongst his peers. Now, he committed suicide. It's up for debate. Did he kill himself because he was not respected by his colleagues? Or did did he kill himself because he was suffering from depression? I don't know. But I do know, and not only was he not respected, Uh, respected by his colleagues he was excommunicated from the church for discovering this thing called the atom because there was no instrument to verify it we have the way we have the ability to verify an atom now and what I don't want to do is limit reality to what is what we have the capacity to measure And that takes us back to this idea of math being a theoretical model or a symbolic representation of what is in the physical reality. I am a person that I, and I have this on my paper, uh, and I'm going to have to do a part two, I guess. I don't even know if you guys, this is a very, another abstract a reflection, but 
Um, I don't know where I was going. Let me put you guys on pause on that. Okay, I know where I was going. So I was thinking about introverted intuition, being able to identify patterns, and we are able to get down to the core essence of a thing. I was looking at my dissertation I wrote. Whoa! It's been eight years, well, almost, yeah, it's been eight years since I wrote that damn dissertation. 300 plus pages. And I got down to the essence of some core concepts and core principles that really weren't, I think they're not talked about in my industry. They're not understood. And that's what, that was the the heart of the dissertation. Getting down to name some, some, some knowings. I don't want to call them truths. Oh my God. Can I call them truths? Some knowings at the most essential level. Other people couldn't see. I could see it. And I was able to capture it through my research. Did I create those? Or did I discover them? Did I, did I, did I create those knowings? Or did I discover them? As a researcher. As an NI Dom. And so it made me wonder... This would philosophical underpinnings um, are found with introverted intuition. Now, this introverted intuition is a subjective function; it's personal. But are we creating knowing, or are we seeing something? That's up to for debate, right? I don't know. I do believe there are times we construct knowing. But I'm going to tell you the truth. I believe in the physical properties. I believe there are properties in this thing called this physical world. There are properties that exist in the physical world. And we have the opportunity to identify and locate them. I think there are properties in the social world. that We have the opportunity to identify and locate them. But I also believe knowing is constructed. I literally fall on both sides in both of those camps. I'm a pragmatist and I'm a realist. That makes me sad to say. Because most of my professional um, rhetoric is about constructivism. We have the ability to construct knowings through our subjectivity. That's what we all do. But then here's another question. Is this physical reality really about physical principles, physical properties, or is it all constructed? Is it all made up? Are we even real? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, you guys. Um, remember I told you I was going to tell you later why I was laughing? Because I live in a duplex. There are people above me. I got a lot of evidence that they are... Um, they're fascinating. They, so, okay. Oh, my gosh. So, I learned of another theory on Wednesday called terror management. 
and it's located inside of existential philosophy. Mm. Yeah, no, no, no. Existential psychology, I'm sorry. Existential psychology is the umbrella and inside is a theory called terror management and that we all essentially are afraid of not existing anymore. And because of that fear, we do things to preserve, um, to make ourselves feel real, to make ourselves um live even like we have kids so that we live beyond us we prefer me i don't have kids but i produce theories i've produced you know in some ways this podcast can be an example of terror management that when i'm gone my voice will continue these conversations will continue as a teacher i put life into my students ways of thinking and that continues right being an aunt being a cousin. But anyway. And so so there's that theory that came up. I was introduced to that on Wednesday. And I was thinking about, I've talked about this on a couple of times. I lived in two spaces where above me are two was identified as alpha men. I've talked about that in the alpha episode. And I did it in another episode. I can't think of the name of it. It was this summer. And so in terror management, this theory of terror management, one of the ways that we make ourselves feel safe is by aligning ourselves to truths. And when we meet people who don't reinforce those truths or don't reinforce our alignment with them, we see them as terror, as a threat. And then we begin to manage them. So it made me think about these two men who identify as being alpha and how they've acted very similar, in very similar ways, different age range, though. I was hoping that this would be a little different because, you know, you I just would hoping that as you age, you would mature. Um, but anywho, very similar reactions, like when people don't reify your power, when people don't reify your alphahood your alpha status and and even though alpha is typically related to the man cuz cuz if you go back and listen to that alpha episode on the alpha i talked about the alpha woman really is about a it's really about the alpha male it's fascinating the alpha female is really about the alpha male but women will punish other women for not aligning to whatever is the status quo, whatever is socially accepted. Oh my goodness. So I was just laughing because I'm in both, I'm different. Like, you know, I live my life fairly different. And so I remember the guy in the other place I lived, he was like, I don't know what you're doing down there. I guess, I don't know if you're talking to, sounds like you're talking to yourself. Because I was recording, I have two podcasts, and and I was and I that was during the pandemic too. I was teaching uh, remotely, so but there's just like anger that I'm not living in a way that reifies their power, that reinforces their existence. I love that, by the way, but it does come with some consequences, and which is why 
I was really excited when someone gave me that theory on terror management because, yeah, I can see it. There are penalties. I've experienced consequences for not aligning with someone else's truth. I think I'm going to start wrapping up, you guys, because I, I have only hit half of the the map. So I just want to talk a quickly, um, bring closure to this idea of personality theory. We only, um, when people discredited, I'm like, we just don't have the math, the, um, instrument to measure it right now. It is a constructed theory. But it might be based on people who can see deep patterns in the physical and and or social world to locate some properties that exist. I I am just deeply in awe of the robust nature of the of what cognitive functions offer. I really am. I really really am, and so. It is just something that will be inside of the theories. I've built two theories in my research, and I want to come back and integrate cognitive functions into those theories. So I wish I could go back to school. Probably I'm going to go take some classes. And I'm like, I'm so on the fence because, man, I would love to. I could, I could spend a lot of time in what's called depth psychology. I would love to learn more about these cognitive functions outside of the internet, right? I'd love to get a degree in it. I just don't have the money or the time to do it. You guys, I want to give the last area on my map because otherwise I've done a pretty good job. The last thing on my map is about purpose and um, as it relates to work and vocation. And we, I believe, irrationally so, I cannot give you any logic behind it, but I believe that we all have a purpose in this physical dimension, whatever this dimension is about. I believe we're here for a reason. I don't believe we all tap into that purpose, but I think we all have a purpose. That's irrationally speaking. I feel like I know what my purpose is. I think that there are different ways I've been able to connect to my purpose. There's not one way to do it, at least from the way I understand it. And I've just taken the last four days to just remind myself that my job is not my purpose. My job is not in my job makes me feel good because it's a cousin to my purpose. I was hoping it was a sister to my purpose, but I don't know. It might just be a cousin. It's related. And it helps me to take care of myself. And I'm still in some indirect way able to connect to my purpose. But when I think about the conflict around those values and when I think about the my the shackling of my TE by not having the right positionality, 
I have been in the last four days thinking about it. That's all I can do because I'm unwilling to, I've been, and I've been prioritizing security. The toilet paper, you guys, you have to go back and listen to other episodes. So I was on, a, I was talking about that damn toilet paper a lot. <laughs> Big bundles of toilet paper. Uh, I haven't mentioned it in a few episodes. So I went to church today. My aunt is a pastor and her sermon was something to the effect of like, um, um, just something around doing the right thing. And when we know, when we do the right thing, do we always do it the right way? And I thought it made me think about the job. And it made me think about this desire for physical security. And it made me question. It made me question truth in terms of purpose. I don't have that worked out. I have a little bit of it, but I don't really have time to get into that. But I am getting close to having a hack to do with those values that are like, like, like a pile up traffic jam, a car accident pile up when my um, TE is shackled. I'm getting close to having a, a hack for that. For my way of problem solving. That was the assignment that I gave you and I told you guys I was going to work on it. Um, I'm almost there. I'm about 80% there. When I, when I seal the deal, I'll come back and share it with you all. Because there is a way to, there is a way for me to move forward and, and embrace that I don't have a position. And that's so, I don't have the positionality I need to always take action in a way where my values won't be in conflict. That's just a reality. Um, so anyway, I, was, I want to say more to that, but I'll have to do it in another reflection. But I think all of this about it's been about truth, right? What is truth? Is truth located in reality? Or is it located in functionality? What we do with the thing? Is it truth? Is truth represented? Or is it, is it constructed? Is, is truth identified or is it constructed? And that goes to this idea of essentialism as in realism and idealism or pragmatism. Yeah. <laughs> no answers. No answers. That's what philosophy does, right? What is truth? And so what? Is this thing that we consider life real? Is it? Can we imagine some other possibilities? My NI is all on it, though. I have been really thinking about it. What is truth? 
You guys, this is, uh, if this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about truth and its philosophical underpinnings and the different ways it has shown up for me in the last four days, cognitive functions, math, life and death, purpose, philosophy. Um, if any of this relates to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. If my moving about has caused some randomness and you, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on my website at urinidom.wordpress.com. Twitter, urinidom1. Facebook and YouTube, urinidom. I got another follower on YouTube. Yeah. And I got somebody that I follow on uh, YouTube uh, to follow, I mean, to comment. It's, he's a big name. Excited. I'm up to nine followers on YouTube, y'all. <laughs> 22 followers on my Twitter account. My other Twitter account, where I was over 3,000, has dropped. I've lost like 200 followers in the last few weeks. So, anyway, but I'm still holding steady at 22 on Twitter. So, <laughs> if y'all feel sorry for me, can go over there in those spaces and follow me, please. Show me some love, okay? Let me give you your assignment. You already know what the assignment is going to be. I mean, come on now, don't you? Here it is. What is truth? How do you define it? Is truth inherently located? Does, in, does truth inherently exist? Is it constructed? Or is it just simply just believed? What is that? What is truth for you? And what difference does it make? And does it have any kind of material relevance in your life? That means if you went about your life and never considered the idea of truth, would it have an impact on you? That's all I got for you today. I want to come back. I want to try to do another reflection. Not today, because we're about to... Started going down for the final count, 25. Remember when I first started, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. I really like it. I'm glad I was able to hold out. It's really changed the, my relationship to this project. I like it. So anyway, we'll talk about that in another time. You guys, it has been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye. <laughs>